Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We have a great show for you this week. As usual, the Third World War marches onwards, and we're here for your weekly update so you don't have to rely on the mainstream zogged-out media to hear about what's really going on in this uh, in these latter days of ours. So uh, with all of that, you know, we've got big things going on in Armenia, Azerbaijan. That's going to be our big focus. Dmitry, how are you doing this week? Yeah, doing great, Conrad. And as always, you know, researching and just watching all the news take place right before our very eyes. Of course, we spoke for a few weeks about how the Middle East was getting slightly, you know, quiet and very calm down. Perhaps we would finally see peace. But nevertheless, as you just said, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict has arisen once again, as it has pre-COVID. And finally, we're seeing an escalation, unfortunately, for the locals living there, because it does not seem like there can be any sort of compromise from either side. It seems like uh, they're really in it sort of both sides are in it to win it and of course you know it's it's also a big lesson in international relations for either side where can the armenian lobby seek its support could it seek it in france the european union or is the azerbaijani lobby in israel in america in russia in moscow is it actually a bit more powerful and influential so we do see that uh, great tension occurring then even more involvement from the, the actual neighbors of the states you know in the, on the you know on the side of armenia we see uh, Iran, and of course, on the side of Azerbaijan, we're seeing Turkey. So this massive involvement is has really escalated it to the point where, as you said, it does look like another front of the Third World War. And that is not being hyperbolic. That is literally what's taking place right now before our very eyes, even just today as we're recording. And we're going to get into all the details about that. And then later on in the show, we're going to get into Ukraine news, Kolomoisky's arrest, stuff with Surovikin, Ukraine's new defense minister, all that kind of stuff. A lot of that stuff went down right after we stopped recording last week. So full spectrum of coverage this week. We're going to be talking again about Ban the ADL, which exploded even more this week. Stuff going on in Israel, uh, you know, a few prophecy things and whatnot. So a jam-packed World War Now episode this week. But let's just dive right on into this this Caucasian question and everything going on in that mountainous region right now. It seems that, I mean, again, this war has been kind of in a stalemate. It, 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 there was there was a major stoppage and ceasefire, you know, in 2020 when the Russian peacekeepers entered the region between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But let's be honest, there's been a lot of, you know, skirmishes, a lot of exchanges of fire, a lot of diplomatic bluster. And of course, this coincides with Turkey's just general kind of expansion and movements in all directions outside of its borders. But what triggered this latest kind of form of aggression from Azerbaijan is uh, as they have secured all of the territory around the self-described Republic of Artsakh, or, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, as it's known internationally. What had happened was in the 90s, the Armenian forces had kind of gone into Azerbaijan, taking control of these Armenian-majority regions, and even expanded outside, giving themselves a bit of a buffer zone. All those buffers have been taken. It's now entirely this sort of, you know, the city of... Uh, the areas around the Artsakh Republic and the Lachin Corridor and this one highway that connects it to the rest of Armenia. And despite the fact that Azerbaijan has, you know, basically been given this territory, but Armenia has said they're going to recognize this as Azerbaijan, you know, not go any further with it. They do want, the reason there hasn't been fully settled on this is that they want more guarantees for the ethnic Armenian population. But basically the uh, Artsakians, as the uh, the people in Nagorno-Karabakh elected Samvel Shakaramyan as the uh, president of their, you know, breakaway region. And these elections going on at all were extremely offensive to the Azeris. They were uh, not happy. They say this went against the, you know, 
territorial integrity of Azerbaijan and goes against the constitution as they consider all the Armenians there, you know, Azerbaijani subjects. And since then, we've seen insane amounts of, you know, Azeri equipment sent to the region, sent to the borders. We've seen them painted with Zs and Vs and Fs. Those have been the three letters I've seen. So I don't know if they're just aping the Russian special military operation letters or if these are just, you know, the most common letters for people to mark their trucks with these days in 21st century warfare. But uh, the Armenians have responded somewhat, but in general, it does seem that, from my perspective, that Pashinyan is really shooting himself diplomatically in the foot as re- in regards to what his country actually needs to defend against this Azerbaijani aggression. Yeah, I think it's quite noticeable that Pashinyan, the prime minister of Armenia, was actually the one escalating escalating the situation in the first place. Him sending his wife a few days ago to Kiev actually to meet up with Zelensky. Uh, really showed at least the Russian side and the pro-Azerbaijani side that look, Pashinyan is taking a pro-Western position, and uh, you know his wife, frankly, was gave a lot of pro-Ukrainian speeches in Kiev, frankly accusing the Russian side of bombing Ukrainian children since February 2022, which was very uh, hypocritical considering Ukraine, the Ukrainian military, was assaulting the children of Donetsk, Lugansk, the Eastern Republics, uh, you know the Eastern people for about eight years prior to that. So it's really confusing as to why exactly he sent her to Kiev and, and didn't go say go himself and give a more you know, constructive feedback. Instead, he sends his wife and she gives this very um, hyperbolic, hyperbolic emotional speech, meets with Mrs. Zelensky, and you know they both have this uh, have a few photo shoots in front of churches, which they recently have o- occupied and taken from the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So it's a very very much a disgusting sort of show of solidarity with the Western powers. And Pashinyan, speaking of Western powers, we do understand that. We've spoken about, about it in a few previous episodes, but Pashinyan's only support in the West seems to be France of all countries. And France is experiencing a really heated, uh, you know, heated situation in Northwest Africa at the moment. So it's not really focusing on the Armenian front. In, in fact, diplomatically, yes, they are supporting Armenia and they are providing them weapons. But how much support will France actually show if Azerbaijan escalates the situation as we've seen them? We're seeing them essentially bring their forces to the front lines. And the other question, Conrad, I think is what are the Russian peacekeeping troops going to do, be that, you know, how are they going to react to the Azerbaijanis pulling up to the front lines and Armenians essentially aping them and bringing, bringing their forces as well into a defensive, you know, sort of a position because uh, from what we understand we don't have exact numbers but there are between 1,000 and 2,000 Russian peacekeeping troops on the borders of Nagorno-Karabakh at the moment and yeah we've seen tensions and different kinds of photos and clips from the front lines that, that as Azerbaijani troops and essentially migrants people traveling across the border basically teasing the Russian troops and there were some local sort of uh, not skirmishes but like arguments of sorts but we haven't really seen this escalate but now of course the Russian troops will either need to withdraw or they'll need to I suppose defend their the particular goals that they were set out to do which was peacekeeping so and I'm just not sure how they could face a you know 10,000 plus Azerbaijani army it's just it doesn't seem doesn't seem very fair and Russia at the moment is a little bit too preoccupied in the Ukraine to really send any more reinforcements to the Nagorno-Karabakh. It's, it's a really tense situation here. And it seems like Pashinyan is definitely the one in charge. So it's not like Azerbaijan wanted to escalate the situation. It, just to recall, guys, a few, was it? Not even a few episodes, but one of the early episodes, maybe episode five or, or six, when the, the meeting of the Collective Security Treaty Organization took place in Armenia, Putin was about to sign the agreement, ends up dropping his pen, and that was a big sign of like, you know, everybody kept on analyzing the drop of Putin's pen in Armenia in November of 2022. They were saying, well, maybe it's a sign that the collective security treaty is, you know, even though it's going to be um, reviewed, it won't be, 
it kind of has come to an end and Putin's friendship with Pashinyan has in fact ended, at least in late 22. And we've seen that today where Pashinyan just this week gave a few speeches where he openly condemns Russia, says that Russia has betrayed Armenia, betrayed their collective alliance. And in fact, uh, Russia only wants the worst for Armenia as opposed to, uh, you know, Russia being you know, actually having peacekeeping troops on the border, protecting Arme the what's left of Armenian sovereignty from the Azeris. So, in fact, I, I think Pashinyan has made a gigantic bl a blunder and, and seeking support from the West and kind of betraying his support for Russia has seen him uh, essentially fall into huge disrepute as, uh, amongst the former Commonwealth of Independent States and Russia, Belarus. I just don't see Pashinyan recovering from this. It's very very sad and unfortunate for the Armenian people. I don't know if it's the Kardashian influence getting them wanting to be more aligned with the West, but it's really not a good call for them, especially at the reality on the ground, the cultural geopolitical realities are that Armenia, your allies are like the anti-Western forces, like Iran, Russia. These are the countries that are your historical, cultural, regional allies, but instead you've decided that you want to be friends with the French and you want to do all these sorts of things. And look, just, just the past few days, uh, Putin met with Erdogan again, which we were, you know, that was all in flux based on how crazy he had been getting with his statements about Ukraine and NATO and the Black Sea and all these other things. So we're going to get into that as well. But as far as what Armenia is going to do if Azerbaijan moves, I mean, it seems that Iran is their only hope. And I don't know if Russia has told Iran anything behind the scenes, kind of given them a green light to act with impunity. But it seems that the Iranians have moved troops to the border of the, there is, again, there's, all these regions are so complicated, but Azerbaijan has an exclave called Nakhchivan, which is entirely disconnected from mainland Azerbaijan, separated by Armenia and then borders, you know, Iran. And basically Iran has said that if Azerbaijan moves on mainland Armenia, like more than just Nagorno-Karabakh, they're going to take Nakhchivan, basically, and occupy it and, you know, to protect the Armenians. And this, I mean, Iran, well, on the one hand, does have border disputes with Azerbaijan. Ultimately, this dispute goes back to, I believe, the 1994 wars, where Iran tried to play like a neutral party, and the Azeris completely, you know, didn't take that and accuse them of working with the Armenians. And that bad blood has stuck around ever since, and they've remained. At this point, they're probably Armenia's most loyal ally. Sure, France may claim that out of their disdain for Turkey. And, you know, I'd say the Russian troops on the ground would probably still say they are in favor of Armenia, but Iran seems, you know, Shia Iran seems to be Armenia's best friend against their Shia enemy, which is just, uh, you know, very interesting to say the least. It shows you how, while it is a clerical religious state, Iran is very much, I don't want to say a slave, but very much beholden to geopolitical and regional realities. And when it comes to Pashinyan, we also remember it was at their at that CSTO meeting. He basically said that, oh, we're not going to renew the CSTO or whatever in Belarus. I mean, I remember Lukashenko was like, what the hell is this Mountain Jew doing? And the <laughs> it was uh, like the uh, I remember everybody was just so pissed off at this guy who like they could tell that like most of them were on the same page, generally speaking, as far as the CSTO's perspective on the situation in Ukraine and the unique they had against the Western states. And he's just throwing all of that into flux. And of course, if Armenia had stuck with Russia, that would give Russia even more of a reason to, you know, clamp down on Turkey. They have their own disputes with Turkey and everything going on with NATO. So I don't see why Armenia would seek to just push Russia further in that direction, considering that it's probably not going to help Russia in the long term either, when we know that, as Metropolitan Neofitos and St. Paisios have said, you know, overnight, Russia and Turkey will go from friends to enemies, which is something we're kind of always watching for here on the show. But if you have any details about uh, Putin and Erdogan's meeting, Dmitry, that would be great because I'm sure 
you know, they clash in Syria, Russian and Turkish proxies directly. I'm sure that the presence of the troops in the Lachin Corridor and the demilitarized zone with Armenia and Azerbaijan, I'm sure that that doesn't not come up, maybe not between Putin and Erdogan himself, but at least between the ministers meeting. Yes, essentially Putin's meeting uh, with Erdogan was, of course, the first show of power that Russia has displayed after its successful, uh, I guess, discussion at BRICS. And of course, all these countries which joined BRICS, as we discussed prior, but Turkey was not part of that. And Iran was, notice again, Iran coming out as the winner. And finally, now that Iran will be a future member of the BRICS, uh, BRICS economic coalition, they will be participating actively in the foreign policy of the region as well, because now they have this security that, look, hey, we actually can't be sanctioned to all hell because we, we're not only economic allies of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, but also regional powers such as India, China, Iran and Persia definitely have a future now in the region. So they can actively say participate in Azerbaijani-Armenian relations and finally seek out their own uh, their own interests in the region. Not saying that's good or bad, but that's just the reality on the ground. And of course, the meeting between Erdogan and Putin, very very um, tense, I would say, in Sochi. And we can we can even see even Erdogan's attitude. Erdogan being such an experienced politician, meeting up with another experienced politician, Putin, both of them being hardcore realists. And Erdogan backstabbing Putin for the, I mean, all of 2023, essentially, winning the election, promising to somewhat support Russia would be understanding of the Russian-Ukrainian tensions has completely sidelined, accepted, sidelined Putin, accepted Sweden, accepted Finland, have, hasn't supported the grain deal. Um, ever, uh, now, of course, this was the main crux of the discussion, was that the reinstatement of the grain deal, somehow assisting Russia and Ukraine in shipping all this grain through Turkey. Um, how can they make it work again? Russia, of course, quitting the grain deal in July was probably the biggest catalyst for its escalation of attacks on Odessa as well as some of the other great ports. But it does it does sort of come into question, like, can Putin actually, does, does he actually have the respect of Erdogan now that uh, all these BRICS, BRICS countries are coming to the forefront and Turkey isn't part of that? Maybe that was the bargain, bargaining chip that Putin used in order to meet Erdogan in person. We all know the guy in responsible for this meeting was Abramovich himself actually being in Sochi two weeks prior to this meeting taking place. It seems like Abramovich, uh, you know, we speak about conspiracy theories and them boys and things like that, but Abramovich seems to be the main, the literal diplomat of the year in terms of actually getting Turkey and Russia speaking together. And I don't know what kind of strings this man has, you know, whether it's Rothschilds or sort of international bankers or some US connections. I don't know, but he definitely does seem to have a, his finger in almost every single pie. He is the Kolomoisky of Russia. He is the big godfather behind the scenes running different ambassadors, embassies, getting people to talk. And it, you know, it does seem like it's benefiting Russia somewhat. If Erdogan and Putin can come to an agreement in this meeting that they had in Sochi at the, you know, at the end of um, last week, it didn't in fact yield anything. All it was is essentially I just said, look, we're, we're going to seek a compromise. Erdogan said, we're going to try and bring Russia back into the grain deal. We'll formulate something here and we'll, we'll get Ukraine to cooperate as well. Ukraine at the moment isn't showing any signs of cooperation on this end. And in fact, the grain deal is still sort of dead in its cradle. It hasn't essentially been reinstated. It hasn't been, uh, brought, it's not brought back to life. And Russia's in a similar position. And of course, as we mentioned, its agricultural bank is still swift banned. So there are still questions as to exactly how Russia will benefit from the grain deal if, unless it gets all some of these bonus um, removals of sanctions, which it, it has been seeking since last year. It's also, I think, interesting that uh, Erdogan would would essentially meet up with Putin after all these controversial events have taken place in Russia. For example, Prigozhin's coup slash Prigozhin's death. There's been a lot of questions as to exactly how strong of a character Putin would appear on the foreign political scale and not visiting South Africa. And in fact, meeting with Erdogan, I think, has reinstated some authority of Putin as a figure in international affairs. You know, him finally meeting with Erdogan, like in person, being like, OK, we can actually talk it out man to man. 
I think that has a lot of power in foreign policy. So Putin, I think, has come out on top, finally, you know, meeting with his main opponent in that Black Sea region, Erdogan. And I mean, I don't know how how Putin could speak with him so frankly without emotion after what Erdogan has done in, uh, you know, inviting Sweden and Finland into, into NATO. And after all of the whole Quran burning shenanigans of Putin visiting Dagestan and that entire sequence of events where Putin had to essentially play, play pro-Muslim in order to try and appease Turkey ends up and what ends up happening Conrad is Turkey is not even interested in like Islamic uh, I guess international affairs whatsoever it's just completely hyper-realist and essentially Turkey all he cares about is actually what benefits the Turkish people first and foremost and Putin has been like oh wow I've just been you know completely fooled into playing along with this you know holding the Quran kissing the Quran game and it just doesn't bring any sort of benefits and yeah now we're finally seeing uh you know, Putin and Erdogan coming together. I think it's probably a good sign because, again, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict does need a neutral third party, and I don't think Belarus plays that neutral card. Obviously, Belarus you know, being very so closely aligned with Russia, and neither does Poland, Poland being so closely aligned with Ukraine. So you definitely need that third power if there is any sort of chance for future peace talks. And I think Turkey could be that could be that uh, catalyst. But again, we do have to keep in mind the prophecies. And, you know, the prophecies do speak about the fact that Russia and Turkey will will go head to head, will fight over a European war of the future. And yeah, so we do have to keep in mind that Erdogan, Erdogan, despite his good relations with Putin right now, even after all the backstabbing, it could get sour very quickly. And what did Turkey say when the Iranians made their threat on Nakhchivan and just on Azerbaijan in general? They said, if Iran moves on Azerbaijan, we will move on them. So I guess if Azerbaijan moves on Armenia at all, that just immediately implicates, I mean, if you include the Russian peacekeepers, immediately four other states. So there is a lot at stake here. And again, it's not, I'm seeing people that are always, you know, on betting on nothing ever happens, saying that this is, this is big and this is, there's a lot going on here. And again, it comes at the same time as these huge escalations in Syria, in Deir Zor, where these tribes are taking on the U.S.-backed forces there in like these uh, former ISIS-occupied regions. And again, I don't know how many of these tribes are ISIS. It seems that they're at the very least not going Wahhabist, cutting people's heads off, but it's very much a local you know, tribal movement that have been, I think they're having Turkish support and are going against all sorts of occup- perceived occupying forces in the region. But as far as Armenia-Azerbaijan goes, it does seem that Aliyev has very much diplomatically outmaneuvered Pashinyan in these past years. And again, if Armenia like stops to exist as a state, I mean, again, that really brings in like that full like pan-Turkish belt. I mean, all the way from Turkey, I mean, even if you want to include parts of the Balkans, all the way from, you know, the Balkans to, you know, to China. That's a, you know, kind of a Turkic civilizational belt. I mean, I don't know how much of a civilization you want to call it, but if people identify in the Turkic capacity, that's, that's, it's pretty continuous. And again, like, I don't, obviously, we could see if Russia would get involved, but obviously Russia's tied up in Ukraine, and it does seem that Armenia has really done everything possible to alienate, to alienate the Russians. So we're going to be watching it very closely. It's so fascinating because, again, think about this, you know, this is a huge conflict brewing possible World War Three catalyst. And remember, Artsakh only has like 120,000 people. So this is like fundamentally about like 120,000 Armenians who, you know, they they don't want to live under Azeri rule, obviously, and the Azeris simply can't allow them to, you know, even have their own kind of regional elections or anything. So, you know, with, in light of everything else going on, here we are. This is what we mean when we say we're living through the Third World War. Like this wouldn't be as high stakes if this was happening five years ago.
Yeah, that's right. And for, frankly, we do have to keep in mind just the alliances in, in that region do bind these countries together in a similar fashion to what they what they did in, uh, say, prior to the First World War. Unlike the Second World War, where Stalin, for example, had a had an alliance defense treaty with Yugoslavia, but never upheld it when the Third Reich actually invaded Yugoslavia and had allowed Yugoslavia to fall within, was it like two or three weeks in July uh, 1941? And so it depends again. Will will Russia actually stand up to its peacekeepers? Will it will it actually assist Armenia if things escalate? Despite the fact that, as we've discussed, um, the majority of Armenians are actually not Eastern Orthodox Christians, but belong to, I suppose, the um, Armenian Apostolic Church. And in fact, we've looked at the statistics. There are a lot less Armenian Orthodox Christians belonging to the same uh, canonical, you know, of the same canonical status as the Russian Church, for example, in the Greek Church. Uh, than there are in Azerbaijan. So Azerbaijan has a great Orthodox Christian population. And if you're going to speak about a country which has more Orthodox Christian presence and even missionary work is more successful, Azerbaijan is that example. And so in terms of church relations, yes, Armenians are Christians and the majority of Azeris are Muslims, but the Eastern Orthodox Church has been incredibly suppressed, maybe you could say, or it hasn't really flourished in in the Armenian countryside for whatever reason. There were there was a really large Armenian diaspora in the past of Eastern Orthodox Christians actually spreading spreading their um, influence and of course uh, missionary work, evangelizing the local Armenian schismatics into returning back to the church. But it hasn't really turned into anything after the, the Russian Revolution and the funding really stopping from the Imperial Russian side as well as the Turkish genocide in the region. Uh, you know, and the what exactly occurred after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, we all know all those atrocities. So Eastern Orthodox Christianity in the region is very heavily, I suppose, um, displayed, frankly, in Azerbaijan only. And let's not speak about the northern neighbor, Georgia, which is incredibly uh, like 99% Orthodox, but very pro-Western and very NATO uh, EU supported. And at the moment, Georgia has really kept quiet. And we're not really going to see them get involved, I think, recently. They're kind of keeping themselves uh, preoccupied with like local relations and, of course, pr pr putting a lot of pressure on the whole Abkhazia Setia situation. So I don't think they're going to get involved in what's exactly happening on their southern borders um, until a bit later on, I think, which I would say is probably a good thing for the Georgians. I don't think the Georgians should. I think they should focus more on domestic policy and actually fixing their country from the inside, as we said before. That's probably the priority for this really uh, concentrated Orthodox Christian nation, as opposed to getting involved in overseas conflicts with majority Muslim countries. You know, for what exact for what exact reason, uh, apart from being like servicemen of the West, there's no real long term benefit, not even a short term one. So that's probably where our analysis kind of comes to it comes to an end in this region is exactly if it does break out. There will be, of course, there will be a lot of uh, Christian slash Muslim tensions, especially if the Azeri troops enter into mainland Armenian territory. We will we will hear most likely about uh, war crimes of various sorts, missing children, churches being destroyed, similar things to what we hear about in Ukraine at the moment, in Donbass, in Donetsk, Zaporozhye, Kherson, and it won't be a pretty sight. So we we hope that the war can be averted in any in any way. Just because what will occur in the Middle East, as we've seen, Middle Eastern conflicts do get quite heated, and there really isn't um, really nobody really holds back, even when Shia when the Shias fight the Sunnis, for example, the Iranian uh, Iraq Iran war, which took place over ten years. I mean, how many Qurans were burned in that conflict? Right when people speak about Quran burnings and them being offensive, how many Qurans did the Iranians and the Iraqis burn during their war? Like as they bombed the different various houses and military facilities, probably thousands of Qurans. So I mean, that entire subject should probably be put to an end. But yeah, the entire conflict, uh, if, if this conflict does escalate, it will be very dire for that particular region. Well, look, when 
say Paisios was talking about World War III and all of these things, what did he say was going to happen afterwards? He talks about there being a Kurdish state, an Armenian state, you know, a lot of these things. And then, of course, a lot of, you know, Turkey, Anatolia, Constantinople being given back to a Greek population once Russia occupies it. So this is uh, whenever, you know, whatever kind of place we're in in the time somewhat before the Antichrist in the aftermath of a Third World War, like a hot, you know, when things act, when the bombs really start flying from the big players, it seems that perhaps the state of Armenia will expand, and but it does seem that perhaps before that comes, maybe it will stop existing. So we're going to be watching that really closely, praying for peace, obviously. But uh, moving towards Ukraine, news we basically almost kind of missed last week, within like a few hours really, was they have a new defense minister and Kolomoisky has been arrested. Dimitri, if you want to kind of brief us on those situations real quick. Yeah, so um, the new defense minister of Ukraine, very interesting uh, physiognomy on the man, and of course, uh, the, the old. Well, let's just say, let's just begin with saying, of course, these 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 news actually came out at the same time. So very interesting. If you read the early life of both of these characters, it, it really does point out exactly what's happening in Ukraine. It could be, it could seem like an external coup of some sort, but the defense minister of Ukraine, Reznikov, after, and I'm just paraphrasing Zelensky here, after 500 days serving his country, has been replaced by a new minister of defense. And essentially, uh, you know, Ukraine's m minister of defense position is a very, uh, it's essentially the civil position in charge of all the generals and the funding of the military, essentially in charge of all the aid. Yeah, the new minister of defense in Ukraine, of course, Rustem Umero, very like long history in serving in serving Ukraine. Well, by long history, you mean post in the Zelensky government. So he's a Zelensky inside guy, doesn't really, doesn't really have um, a very reputable, uh, I guess uh, it doesn't have the reputation of a local minister under Poroshenko or anybody from the old regime. So, in fact, him serving Zelensky personally will meet the will meet the needs of the modern Ukrainian state in terms of, you know, uh, fund smuggling, sort of assisting the Ukrainian military in just as much as it needs, and then of course hiding the extra stuff uh, that is provided from overseas um, humanitarian slash military aid. Now, what we what we need to mention is just the Reznikov's failure. Of course, Reznikov being used. This is the former minister of Ukraine and defense. Uh, the, the, the former minister of defense in Ukraine. So he, he could be, of course, used as a scapegoat now. And Zelensky could, in fact, because a lot of the blame has been, fall, been falling on Zelensky primarily, as opposed to, say, some of the generals in charge or even the minister of defense. And now Zelensky could perhaps even start up a, an official investigation and audit, um, perhaps investigating the minister of defense for corruption. Uh, and Reznikov's position in the in, in the future of Ukraine is a very uh, questionable one. There are there, there are already Ukrainians angrily speaking about how Reznikov actually screwed up the whole uh, summer offensive of Ukraine, and he's actually in charge of it, which is why he was replaced. So this all comes in the wake of say uh, official sources claiming close to thirty thousand plus. You know, some sources claiming as high as fifty thousand Ukrainians dead during this destruct really just destructive for Ukraine counteroffensive in the summer of two thousand twenty-three. And it does really point to the fact that both sides, both Russia, and you know, we'll speak about Surovikin in a moment, as well as Ukraine, are replacing some of their internal ministers and some of these figures of authority when things do come to tension. Now, of course, the word, um, let's just speak about things a bit more crudely here. There are some very uh, the pretty disgusting clips and videos that have come out about Rustem, Rustem Imerov, the new defense minister of Ukraine. Now, physiognomy and actual appearance aside, this man has has done some pretty disgusting things on the internet posted videos clips it seems that he is some sort of some form of sexual degenerate it's not quite clear exactly what maybe he was just on narcotics or but there are, there is some pretty disgusting footage of the form of the now head minister of the ukrainian defense system so very questionable um but but perhaps maybe because they have blackmail on him that's why Zelensky actually made the uh, gave him the promotion in the first place it does in fact really question you know the 
integrity of the Ukrainian state, but we haven't really we haven't really spoken about that factor for a while. The Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian state doesn't really have any integrity. So this exact promotion, you know, it doesn't surprise anybody. Yeah, I mean, the physiognomy is terrible. Just, you know, you might not think he's a Crimean Tatar if you uh, looked at him from a certain angle. But, you know, maybe he's a crypto, who knows. But I think when it comes to this, I mean, this comes at the same time as Kolomoisky's arrest, which, you know, we know Kolomoisky was the number one bankroller of Zelensky. I mean, he basically created Zelensky. He not only was his main political supporter, but he also created the show Servant of the People, which, you know, Zelensky took on the character of you know, the president of Ukraine and then became the president of Ukraine. And, you know, in the show, he's like a candidate for EU membership and all this stuff. And, you know, now look at, I mean, it's literally like, I mean, it's not just, it's beyond predictive programming. Predictive programming is almost, you know, more ephemeral and ethereal. This is just like, you know, people have just gotten TV brains. So the only way to get somebody elected on a national platform is to uh, show people them doing that in a funny TV show. You know, people, <laughs> like that was just what, what needed to happen. But I mean, he has been arrested, and there's all sorts of theories on uh, why this has happened, you know, why Zelensky, you know, maybe people say Zelensky's influence is, when, is, you know, dwindling. Other people say this is a way to get Kolomoisky out of politics. Other people say, you know, this is just the way the cookie crumbles in the U.S. is really, you know, when we say Zelensky's influence is waning, it means the U.S. is fully cracking down. Because Kolomoisky, you know, for better or for worse, he is Ukrainian. Like, he's an, he's an independent Ukrainian base of power because he's, you know, a billionaire, you know, dual Israeli Ukrainian citizen and has been a hardcore supporter of the most intense, some of the most intense Ukrainian nationalism we've seen. So, Dmitry, what are your what are your thoughts and theories? Yes, yeah, so Kolomoisky uh, has been sentenced to has been sentenced to uh, a, few, a few years in prison, and essentially the even the main penalty given to him was that uh, he essentially is is fined thirteen point five million dollars in terms of like. It, in terms of repayment to the Ukrainian state. So they're alleging Kolomoisky was in charge of a massive corruption scheme. Uh, essentially, he was uh, purchasing equipment for Ukraine through some subsidiary companies and overcharging. So essentially, uh, you know, little by little, like dripping and dripping funds into his own accounts. Uh, and a lot of contracts actually went for him. But we understand that these these cases of corruption, probably a lot of the ministers, as well as military officials in Ukraine are actually have similar, have you know, probably have similar crimes behind them. And so this particular small corruption, uh, corruption charge of 13.5 million, it really doesn't seem like much considering the hundreds of billions of dollars provided to Ukraine. So the question, as you said, Conrad, it arises, will is, is this an escape plan for Kolomoisky? If some people are considering maybe Kolomoisky is retiring from politics in Ukraine and he, he is in charge. He was in charge of like the main Jewish community in Dnipropetrovsk. The, the biggest synagogue, I believe, in all of Europe is actually in Dnipropetrovsk, Kolomoisky's main city, which is very close to Zaporozhye and somewhat close to the front line, you could say. And Kolomoisky is a big character in the entire, like, I guess, a Jewish elite community in Ukraine. And as you said, he was in charge of Zelensky. And there's this other consideration that Kolomoisky would never, of course, turn on his own golem, his uh, Frankenstein's monster, Zelensky. And Zelensky is not in, not in any position to harm his master. So if the question arises, probably Kolomoisky actually went along with this corruption investigation, uh, indicted himself, and in fact is willing to go to a, into a cozy prison somewhere in Western Ukraine, some, you know, with, with televisions, prostitutes, God knows what these people are into, but and wouldn't in fact leave would would come out of prison essentially with clean hands and leave Ukrainian politics. It, that's regardless of if Ukraine wins or loses the war. So perhaps this is a sort of escape plan for him. It's almost some, almost like um, in order to I guess alleviate himself from any from any of the uh, bizarre things occurring in, on the front lines or even from the Zelensky campaign. Perhaps it's a 
it's his it's his personal way of leaving the Ukrainian political sphere of influence uh, without sort of uh, without any you know burning all the bridges and sort of having no strings attached to any any future obligations now of course he could always go live in israel after his sentence is over and have a you know like a proper retirement similar to some of the russian oligarchs who ended up leaving russia during the putin administration so it does it does really kind of paint a picture of well ukrainian politics doesn't seem doesn't seem very straightforward and really it isn't because we see these powerful people who are even behind the Zelensky campaign early on and of course we'll probably assist Zelensky in some way through their subsidiaries and you know third parties will assist Zelensky in future election campaigns if Zelensky even makes it that far but we we do have to consider that Ukrainian politics is very it's a very gray area and even some of these people despite some of the ethnic and monetary allegiances they don't necessarily always align on the same question. So like Zelensky firing Reznikov, Reznikov being one of them boys, Kolomoisky, of course, kind of leaving and just saying, look, I'm not, I don't want to be part of this anymore, uh, going to prison for a few years, having to pay a fine. This is all part of part of just the plan. And I guess whatever is occurring in Ukraine, um, we can definitely see it getting worse, and especially some of these major figures leaving leaving the field. It's not it's not like they're going to be replaced with anybody competent. And somebody like Umerov, you know, having almost no reputation of being a civil minister of any success since at least 2019, it's really questionable as to how he can run the Ministry of Ukrainian Defense uh, effectively, right? So somebody with no reputation, he's never served in, in the military of Ukraine. He's similar to, of course, Shoigu, I would say, but unlike Sergei Koshigotovich Shoigu, Umerov has no history whatsoever. His his past is almost completely blank. He he's just a Crimean Tatar, and of course, his Crimean Tatar heritage, despite it being under question, it does kind of paint this picture of well, he's a Crimean Tatar. He could perhaps in the future speak about you know the integration of Crimea back into Ukraine, and he can kind of keep that rhetoric up because he's a native Crimean. And let's not mention what the Crimean Tatars did during the a great patriotic war during World War you know World War Two, and all the war crimes that occurred over there, but. Yeah, it does seem like Ukraine is kind of falling apart on the inside, or more or less like corruption does not not just crumble your internal affairs, but it also crumbles you know networking and people's relationships. Like when everybody has blackmail on each other and everybody's corrupt, how far could things really fall apart? And it shows that well, even the second and third people in charge can be replaced quite easily. Now, speaking of Crimean Tatars, everyone should go to listen to my uh, recent interview on the Hervoye Moritz show on TNT Radio. I don't think the video is available. It's still only available as audio. The link is on my Twitter page at GnomeRad. But uh, I was wearing my well-known Phrygian cap on the show, and uh, Hervoye pulled out his, during one of the commercial breaks, pulled out his Crimean Tatar hat. So, uh, you know, he, he he's Croatian, you know, and, uh, and Mexican, but he... Uh, <laughs> He uh, he had the hat, I guess, from some of his travels. He's been in Kazakhstan. We're probably going to have him on the show next week, so look forward to that. Uh, going to be a great discussion. But yeah, and I uh, I made some. I have this great image that I captured of us talking in the hat, and I have that as a like a reaction image now. Him in the Crimean Tatar hat. I, I had some, you know, you know Crimean blank got me acting strange. You know, I've I've made some memes about it. Not not going to complete the sentence. You know, we have. We had this is a family show, right? But the uh, <laughs> I think it was it's a good it's a good interview. I talk about you know World War Three, my perspective, all sorts of other. He asked me some good questions, so check that out. Maybe we'll have it linked below. But yeah, I mean with Kolomoisky, I mean his it's definitely kind of the end of an era of Ukrainian politics, regardless of if he's exiting on his own terms or if he really has been, you know slapped down, it does seem that Ukrainian politics, despite, you know, we know low elections will be happening as long as the war is ongoing. Zelensky will make sure of that. So I'm pretty confident that the next, uh, you know, true shift of power in Ukraine will be some kind of, uh, 
I don't want to say coup per se, but some kind of, you know, involuntary shakeup by an external force, whether it's the U.S. and some Poles coming in or Russia obviously doing what we know that it's going to probably be doing here in the next few months and making it all the way and forcing a regime change. Because as we've said before, I do believe Russia does want Odessa, does want the Black Sea coast, but it really would much rather take those places by uh, by the pen and not the sword, as they might say. So we'll we'll, we'll see, of course, how how that all goes as Ukraine enters a new, uh, you know, maybe new uh, oligarchs have filled his place behind the scenes. Who knows who has gotten insanely rich on some of this money moving around? So you know, maybe they just found some new guys and they didn't have to deal with Kolomoisky anymore. But unless you have anything else you want to say about that, we have to talk about Surovikin as his defenses seem to be holding amidst the Ukrainian counteroffensive that has gone effectively nowhere. They still haven't even made it to the first major Russian front lines, you know, the Surovikin lines as they're called. But, you know, speaking of Surovikin, what has become of, you know, General Armageddon? Yeah, so Surovikin, of course, uh, went missing uh, early in June after his his really short clip that he released during the Prigozhin Revolt on the 24th of June uh, 2023. But we remember Surovikin as being the leader of not just the Russian defense line of but also the Russian offensive after the fall of Kherson. So him being in charge of essentially most of the successes seen after the summer of 2022, Surovikin's name and his signature has been on it, and he's, of course, he was in charge of the Russians taking Bakhmut and all the other small, I guess you could say, but memorable successes of the Russian army, and we, we've all seen Surovikin as a certain positive figure, despite some of his um, uh, interesting connections in Moscow and other family ties and things like that, but uh, Surovikin has officially been uh, removed from the, minister, from the Russian Ministry of Defense website, so his, his portrait is no longer there as one of the leaders of the special military operation. And in fact, it does seem like he hasn't been demoted yet from the rank of uh, army general, but he, ha he has in fact been uh, ousted and in fact, um, you could say officially demoted and, and been made the, the, I think, the head of the uh, anti-air defense of the Commonwealth of Independent States, some really offshoot left, I guess you could say, almost off to the side, fringe, fringe, I mean, when have we heard the word independent, Commonwealth of Independent States in the last year and a half? Almost none. I mean, we've heard of Sayuzhne Gusudarstu, so the um, Union State of Belarus, so that particular sort of alliance. We've heard of the um, collective uh, collective security treaty organization between Armenia, Russia, Belarus, and all the other CIS countries, but the CIS Economic Union, like, what does Surovikin have to do with that at all? He's a military general, he's served several um, several times in Syria, he has a, a pretty pretty extreme combat experience going back to at least uh, for, for the entirety of the you'd say, 21st century. He's perhaps the second most experienced general in the entire Russian army after Gerasimov himself. And in fact, demoting him to such a strange position is almost reminiscent of, you know, you could think of historical figures, like questionable ones, like Nikolai Yezhov, for example, the head of the NKVD under Stalin, who was in charge of a lot of the uh, persecutions and, and, the, and the great purges of the 1930s. And when Stalin demoted him, he was made, so this is the guy who's in charge of the future KGB, he's demoted and made uh, the People's Commissioner for Water Transport for a few months. And then Stalin ends up uh, executing him as well. So similar to Yezhov, Surovikin, and not comparing, of course, Surovikin, who's you know, allegedly an Orthodox Christian to someone as demonic as Yezhov, but Yezhov's, Yezhov was also demoted before he was completely ousted and, and even executed by Stalin. And perhaps this does point towards uh, Surovikin's uh, future uh, you know, I'm not going to say it, but you know, if an accident does occur to Surovikin in the next few months or even year, we it won't surprise me at all. And 
the, I guess the speculation does arise. The Russian Ministry of Defense, the Russian government, they haven't provided us an answer as to why Surovikin, this man responsible for the defenses that are holding very successfully in Zaporozhye, they haven't explained why he was demoted, why he was moved away from the special military operations command structure. Was it because of his ties with Prigozhin? Was it because he actually, maybe he shouldn't have, uh, I don't know, maybe he shouldn't have left Kherson perhaps, or uh, maybe they're blaming him for the Russian retreat of his, out of Izium. We just don't know. And so we're kind of left to speculate on this. And the speculation is uh, they're not quite positive. So or maybe they're just using, again, like I mentioned, Vereznikov in the Ukraine. Perhaps they're just using Surovikin as a scapegoat and blaming this more or less successful general with some of the losses and the failures of the Russian army in the last six to eight months. And so that's uh, obviously the conclusions we can come to are quite negative. Generally, I don't think this is a a positive trend for the Russian military. I'm not sure what kind of changes this could bring, but it's, there's definitely been a, a shakeup in the, in the Russian military structure. And Gerasimov and Shoigu have shown that they are the absolute. Now that Prigozhin is gone and Surovikin is gone, the Gerasimov and Shoigu, you could say Gerasimov, Shoigu, and uh, Putin triumvirate is reigning supreme over the SMO. Complete power influence. There is no other charismatic figure rising up to challenge them. And yeah, that's exactly what we're seeing uh, at the moment. And you know, speculation could. I'm not sure what kind of thoughts you have, uh, Conrad. We've heard negative ones, such as maybe Surovikin has been getting tortured, maybe he's dead. And in fact, I wouldn't, neither of those things would surprise me if he was, in fact, in charge of the uh, Shoigu Rebellion and if he somehow consented to it or assisted it. I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps the FSB did, did you know, uh, have him in their, in their basements for quite a few weeks because the photo that appeared from him uh, five days ago, we saw the first photograph of Surovikin in a few months, you know, kind of evidencing that he's alive and he's unshaven, kind of uh, on holidays, walking around with his wife, looking uh, you know, nothing like a general whatsoever. So in fact, he's been away from military service for quite some time and just really questionable sort of uh, decisions from the Ministry of Defense of Russia. And I, I'm just wondering where this could all lead. Yeah, I don't necessarily have any new analysis for anybody besides the fact that, you know, I mean, do we all like to think that the Russians are handling this in a magnanimous way, you know, just, you know, giving him this kind of demotion, if he really was part of this literal coup? I mean, we don't, we'll, we're never really going to know any answers to these questions, but, you know, the picture, you know, I wasn't seeing too much body double analysis, at least he seems that he is alive and he is, you know, he hasn't been humiliated in some huge way besides the demotion so again the defenses are holding it seems that the ukrainians are trying to make moves in the south donetsk direction but it's all it's really not going too well for them the russians are making progress you know subtle progress in other directions as well so it really does seem that short of some extreme reshuffle and in light of what appears to be total mobilization i mean as far as I could tell, it was real. It seems that countries like Ireland are now sending Ukrainian refugees uh, military summons, <laughs> basically saying, "Yeah, we're sending you back to Ukraine, bro. You're, <laughs> you thought, trust me, bro. We're we're sending enough money to this war. You know, you're still in a, you're still in Ukraine, basically, man. Like that's the thing. You go to any of these Western countries, they're all basically parties to this thing. They're gonna be like, yeah, bro, get on, get out there, bro. We sent you all these weapons. Go use them." <laughs> Yeah, not not only that, but just the the recent call of in, across all of Ukraine, essentially propaganda videos, ads being released for the promotion of uh, women actually conscripting themselves and joining, being drafted into the Ukrainian military, as well as just the overall standard falling for people with various mental illnesses, which some of them, mind you, are quite dormant, like so say bipolar disorder, or border borderline personality disorder, or even low levels of treatable, you, know, you could say treatable schizophrenia, for example, now being allowed to join the Ukrainian military. I mean this 
is this is beyond simply hiring members of the alphabet community and transgenders to, of course, fight with the Ukrainians. This is these people with categorical, um, you know, illnesses which need to be treated. But in fact, maybe they should not be included in the military service of Ukraine. I mean, these people could get their hands on. I mean, they could just have a have a bit of a tick and you know, destroy their destroy their whole, whole squad or in, in fact put put their own comrades under I mean, there's just it's 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 completely and I'm not even going to mention the fact that the women it's completely ludicrous how their Ukrainians Ukrainian army is actually beginning to conscript women and promoting the conscription of women, actually signing contracts with the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine and joining, you know, being drafted essessentially. Wait, I'm not sure if the call to to draft women has been uh, put into full effect yet, but the ads are there. So maybe the next step is just to compulsorily to just begin drafting single women between the ages of I don't know, 21 and 40, perhaps. Which you know, um, if if women are single at that age in Ukraine, it might might be like a real call for them to perhaps leave leave and go abroad, which a lot of them have been doing already. The calls. You know, you know, people have already analyzed this. as many as 10 million Ukrainians have already fled abroad in the last year and a half. And perhaps the number will increase now that the, now that the women are somewhat endangered of fighting, uh, completely untrained against the Russian uh, cutthroat military. So it's it's just, it seems absurd and almost almost like we're making this news up, Conrad. But the ads are there and the, the speech is being given by some of the Ukrainian politicians that the motherland needs to be defended or whatever they call Ukraine, uh, you know, Nezhalezna Ukraina and Nezhalezna uh, needs to be protected. So the independence of this Ukrainian degenerate state needs to be now defended by the bodies of not just the young men, but also the young women, the older women and people with mental mental deficiencies. Which, which is quite unfortunate and extremely dangerous, which is the Russian army has not resorted to. So even if the Russian army actually brings on a second mobilization or even a third mobilization wave, none of these people, none of the standards will drop as low as they have for Ukraine, which does paint a picture as to which side is more humane and which side actually reflects, uh, you know, any sort of decent ethical Christian values. And the Ukrainian side definitely does not. It's no, that's not good news for anybody in Ukraine, because, I mean, I know any major military, Russia, the U.S., uh, Ukraine itself, the UK, Germany, Belgium, I think even countries like in India and Bangladesh, these countries have had insane people in the military just snap, you know, kill five people on base or whatever. You know, this has happened in Russia, Ukraine, the US just in the past few years. So I can't imagine enlisting, you know, schizophrenics in the time of where your country is about to lose a major war to its neighbor is going to be a recipe for success in any kind of capacity. But unless you have anything else to say about that, we got to talk about, well, actually, real quick, in, in the midst of all of this, the we talk about the defenses holding, you know, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporozhye, Kherson are having their first regional elections as parts of Russia, not voting to join Russia, but are voting to, uh, you know, they're voting for their local representatives or local party officials, people that will go to, you know, the state council in their, in their regions, the, uh, at some point, there are, there are already elections for the delegates that ultimately vote for, like, the regional governor and whatnot. So parties are popping up. You know, there's obviously, I'm sure, United Russia has a presence there, but there's other other parties as well. Perhaps we'll do an episode just on the local kind of political situation in some of these new Russian regions. But as a, Patrick Lancaster has a good video about all of this. He goes to some of the polling stations in Donetsk. They had to extend the voting period for multiple days because, obviously... There are certain days when it's really not safe to be going into the center of the city and doing things like that, so due to all the shelling and everything. So with all of that, I kind of want to talk about the, uh, you know, speaking of civilians being assaulted from the air, uh, Elon Musk appears to have, you know, become a, a participant. With the Starlink stuff, he already was a participant, but in that regard, become even more of an open participant in the war. I have 
an interesting tie-in with that and the band the ADL stuff if you want to fill us in on some of the details with his his involvement. Yeah, so Elon Musk has recently tweeted that he said that, look, um, there was an emergency request uh, from for, from government authorities. To, this I'm reading the Elon Musk tweet. It was an emergency request from government authorities to activate Starlink all the way to Sevastopol in Crimea. The obvious intent was to sink most of the Russian fleet at anchor in Crimea. If I had to agree with the request, SpaceX would be explicitly complicit in a major act of war and escalation of the conflict in Ukraine. So Elon Musk has just stated that he chose not to support, not to use his satellites and some of his uh, technology in support of well, US NATO interests as well as Ukraine in, in destroying the Russian fleet held at anchor in, in the Black Sea. And people have said, well, look, if Elon Musk did use Starlink and of course the Russian fleet would be destroyed, Russia would activate nuclear weapons. I'm not sure if it would escalate to that extent, but Elon Musk, yes, he is. Uh, so Twitter seems to be absolutely at the, at the helm of the conflict with Elon Musk's satellites being of some some level of uh you know providing aid not just to the ukrainian forces which he did earlier last year uh but also um of course being almost at the at the forefront you know having almost the the chips in his hands that could turn the conflict in some capacity at least he's claiming conrad that he does have the technology to assist the ukrainian forces in in such a great way but he doesn't want to be you know the magnanimous elon musk doesn't want to of course assist zelensky because you know zelensky is a questionable character so uh elon musk again kind of uh, interesting because it does align with um the adl adl of course being a ukraine supportive organization in general and you know just the ethnic ties there we could of course uh, view them with our own eyes but elon musk really sabotaging the ukrainian war effort at the same time as pushing this this whole ADL story and you know beginning his lawsuit against the ADL very shortly I, I presume but it's all very very um it's it's all developing very very quickly on the Twitter X end yeah no I mean you got to get on X if you're not on there already it's the only real fun place to be on the internet I'd say the only fun places on the internet besides I mean you know places like 4chan they still you can enjoy your time there but it's all been so overrun by bots you have X is finally a bit of a vision into a free speech internet rumble I think they're doing pretty great work over there you can follow us over there as well but the YouTube sync is taking really long for some reason but hopefully it'll catch up so all of our content will be over there but when it comes to uh this ban the ADL thing, I mean, I just got to really congratulate, you know, Keith Woods in particular, of course, Nick Fuentes, John Gage, uh, Sam Parker, some of these other characters. I mean, even Suleiman from uh, the Twitter spaces with Mario, Khaleesi as well, both of them have really done a great job bringing awareness to this. I was allowed to speak in one of the earliest spaces before even Mario started doing his spaces. So, you know, I'm not I'm not claiming any kind of credit, but I, you know, I did my part. I tweeted a lot. Me and Dimitri did a lot of tweeting and I... I went off in a few Twitter spaces where some pretty influential people were listening. So hopefully I made an impression, you know, made sure to name drop Tsar Nicholas and all of this because, you know, he's a pretty important character when it comes to what these people get up to in the past, especially in the past hundred years. And what's so interesting about all of this was how in all these Twitter spaces, especially the big ones with like eight, nine, ten thousand listeners was all these random people, you know, these lawyers, they just come out of nowhere to do everything to get the topic away from just what it's about, which is about, you know, Jewish power and should this Jewish group, the ADL, have the ability to basically financially ruin any institution that they believe gives a platform to speech they don't like. And again, if that speech they don't like, you believe happens to be anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, or whatever, no one, no one cares. That's not the debate. The debate isn't about do we like anti-Semitism. The debate isn't about 
does Elon Musk like Jewish people or not? The debate isn't about all of that. But all these people join these spaces and they just derail it to where it's just about anything but what it's actually about. Because what it's actually about is an intangible, I mean, is, is a tangible reality that people are becoming aware of, which is just the Jewish stifling of free speech for their specific interests. And yes, we know the ADL is a more liberal organization and all these right-wing Zionists want to tell us that. But look, they are okay with Zionism as well. They don't have a problem with, you know, the super extreme forms of Zionism, frankly. So how about you let the people that are uh, on the receiving end of the censorship talk, you guys sit down and listen. You know, I know people don't like to, you know, the Jewish people are the ones that like to tell us to sit down and listen. But I think, uh, you know, it's time to, uh, it's time for a bit of a reversal there because, you know, this is a Christian country, America, and that's where X Corp is headquartered. So that's kind of, and of course, this has ramifications for everybody around the world. We know that you know, it's a global thing. The global conversation is kind of happening on there. But so that makes this all the more important that, again, we have all these people saying like, oh, well, Twitter isn't protected by the First Amendment. It's a private corporation. It's like, we know that. It was a public corporation that had no hope of free speech. Elon Musk took it private as the only way to save free speech on it. And now, because a mafia, the ADL, is holding it hostage for that very purpose, you're going to invoke the Constitution. It's the exact opposite. I should be able to invoke the Constitution and say that a private company – I should be able to say, yes, a private company should be able to do what it wants, a.k.a. Elon Musk should be able to let me say whatever I want about Israel on your platform. That's how it's going to be. And they, they don't want to accept that. But, you know, the waves were made. You know, the hashtag got suppressed. It hit well over a quarter million posts, you know, multiple huge Twitter spaces. They were shutting down the Twitter spaces. They were capping Twitter spaces. You know, they were doing everything they could. You know, Linda Yaccarino is still posting, you know, some of the most, you know, groveling stuff. She's edited her tweets multiple times. I can't remember if we talked about this last week, but it's just so funny how, you know, uh, what was her name? Vivian Bertovici or whatever her name is, the former Israeli ambassador to Can the, the Canadian ambassador to Israel. You know, Keith Woods exposed her as a black cube, you know, Mossad agent live in a space. She joined the space, you know, pretending not to know what the ADL was, despite being followed by Jonathan Greenblatt. It was an amazing moment. Anyone who hasn't seen the clip should go look it up. We'll we'll link it below. But truly a, a very epic, you know, past two weeks, you know, week and a half, however long it's been since it started you know, for uh, for free speech warriors, you know, Christians, white people on the internet, because, you know, I know the, AD, you know, the ADL has been holding, you know, insane amounts of last minute meetings, all hands on deck, you know, they're not going to present that way. But, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt's been on the air. He's been on all the news things, you know, slandering everybody, slandering Andrew Torba, slandering, you know, trying to, he's been trying to keep it, you know, quote unquote, good optics, though, because he's aware of the lawsuit threat. So now he's making it very clear. Well, we didn't say Elon Musk himself is anti-Semitic. We didn't say this, didn't say that. But look, man, you can't pretend that you didn't lead an advertiser boycott that, yes, has led to $22 billion in advertiser revenue lost for Elon Musk. So I hope he sues them. I hope he puts the pedal to the metal. I hope he gets rid of this Linda Yaccarino character and, you know, embraces the American spirit that is, you know, freedom and the ability to criticize anyone and anybody, including, you know, these people. So I think Jonathan Greenblatt, he's he's probably pretty scared and the uh the consciousness really is rising. And of course, uh it was a really good focused message. No one made it too crazy. It didn't suddenly become a debate on the Second World War. It was it was focused, it was relevant, it was about our time, it was about free speech. And sure the, the conversation created a broader space for a general discussion of Jewish power. And, you know, I w I'm not one of those people that was trying to derail it. I know I brought in some history, but this is important. I mean, there was a lot of spaces where we did really wake a lot of people up to the Leo Frank situation. We talked about that last episode. So 
I think, yeah, really, really a big white pill all around. And frankly, the fact that suddenly in the midst of all this, when Elon is replying to Keith Woods, he's boosting this, you know, 20 plus tweets about ban the ADL situation. Suddenly a huge uh, biography comes out and he's accused of sabotaging the Ukrainian war effort and he loves Russia. You know, this is the kind of thing that suddenly, you know, the ADL and these, you know, these Jewish groups, they don't play. Now they're, they hit them with stuff that, yeah, now the feds are going to be involved, bro. Like now you're going to be looked at as like a foreign agent. You know, it's like, oh, you wanted to let some people have some Twitter spaces? Boom. We're going to accuse you of treason or something like that. So again, obviously I don't believe not helping Ukraine Ukraine kill uh, innocent Russians is treason. But you ask some people in the United States government, they they basically view Israel and Ukraine as uh, our country. And this, you know, from sea to shining sea over here in North America, we kind of seem like an afterthought sometimes. But uh, what do you think on all that, Dimitri? Do you think uh, ban the ADL? Do you think it's just getting started? What do you think? I think hopefully Elon Musk does take the lawsuit all the way to you know whichever American court uh, should be holding this jurisdiction. Considering the the damages he'll be seeking and the and the legal remedies, it'll probably be a very a court you know a very high court because again he'll be seeking damages and at least the hundreds of millions, if not I'm not even sure if he'll he'll be seeking remedies of billions of dollars, claiming that's how much damages the ADL has caused to X and to some of his other subsidiary companies. I'm just not sure what the scope of it will be, but definitely the ADL is sweating right now, hiring its uh, hiring its lawyers, and the quetching is definitely uh, ongoing behind closed doors. But just for, I guess, uh, Catholics and Orthodox Christians listening, the ADL has openly, essentially, um, advocated against Orthodox and Catholic Catholic denominations of, of Christianity very actively over the over the last few years, specifically attacking the Orthodox liturgy, calling anti-Semitic, um, painting Orthodox saints in certain lights, claiming that look, uh, Orthodox Christians in general are more right-wing, they're more dangerous. You know, just giving us uh, giving us a bad rap, at least in English-speaking countries in the United States, as well as countries such as Canada. Like they've been very active in the English-speaking sphere. Essentially, if somebody Google, and of course ADL because it's favored by the Google algorithm, when you would uh, you know uh, type in something like orthodox christians are they extremists of course an adl website will pop up and so them actually painting painting us in a bad light and painting not even in a bad light but simply reframing and re reshuffling uh some of the some of our particular some of our i guess you can just say elements of our tradition and aligning them with whatever whatever uh you know through rose-colored glasses whatever viewpoint they have on history and essentially claiming that we're the ones we're you know in charge of whatever atrocities have occurred in the past we're also complicit in it and we're also we should be also censored alongside some of the more i guess even secular groups in the united states and we're in fact uh, also somehow complicit in modern modern uh you could say uh, essentially cultural pogroms occurring in the united states which in fact you know the only viewpoint me and conrad people like me and conrad have is that all all jewish people in the, in the, in the united states should should honestly and earnestly convert to orthodox christianity they shouldn't remain in their the general Amen. religion so that's that's i think the end position if that's anti-semitism then so be it because at, the, at this point that's the message of the entire orthodox church anybody belonging to the adl should should of course kind of forego this this idea that they have to fight this alleged defamation ongoing of Semitic peoples all over the world because we do have people like people actually involved heavily in in missionary work in in America and of course we know missionary work is difficult because in the United States and English speaking countries the left wing ideology left leftism liberalism is already so powerful in order to you know actually fight through that barricade the last thing we need is an active organization in the background uh, heavily heavily attacking the Orthodox Christian message and claiming that we're some extremists we shouldn't be joined in fact we're not extreme we're just traditional 
traditional. We are the traditional version of how reality should be viewed, how history should be viewed. We're not, we don't focus entirely on some of these uh, anti-Semitic claims. We don't even have the time, frankly, to defend ourselves against these allegations of anti-Semitism because it's, it's literally fruitless and pointless. A lot of these allegations of defamation by the ADL towards us, even I, I can, I can't speak for the Roman Catholics, but we can see people like Nick Fuentes and Joel Davis actually probably do have something to say about their Christian denominations being attacked as well by this organization. So it's completely, it's demonic. And let's just, let's just keep it a buck 50, right? The ADL has been in support of all, not just uh, pro-Jewish groups in, in, in English speaking countries like America, but also uh, just pro left wing groups like the ADL has has given it's it's, it's almost like it's new Freemasonry supporting not just hyper hyper enlightenment vision of what the United States should be like Jonathan Greenblatt and some of these other people in charge of the organization. They don't have a conservative message for America. They have a, a message of degeneracy. And it's it's just and, and like the second factor is just besides the leftism, the second factor is, of course, their uh, alignment with the state of Israel, which is completely, you know, completely parasitical living off the United, the funds of the United States. And we've discussed this heavily over, you know, the last 40 or so episodes. But Israel's Israel's control over certain United States institutions is very clear. And ADL is a big part of that. In fact, uh, and this parasitical relationship. The Israeli parasitical relationship to the United States, the ADL is completely in support of it. So, again, that question of uh, well, this ambassador being a you know secret agent for Mossad or Joel, De- uh, you know, these people calling them out, I think it's not surprising whatsoever for for us actually being aware of you know what's happening behind the scenes. It's if if anything, I think it's uh, it's time that major figures such as Elon Musk actually begin calling out these these uh, these hypocrites openly and. Uh, frankly, uh, just cementing this vision that, look, it's okay to speak about this, right, without being banned or somewhere like on Twitter or Facebook or, I mean, maybe it's a bit too early for Facebook or YouTube, but some somewhere like Telegram or X, formerly Twitter, I think it's 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 the right time to non-hypocritically discuss these issues in the open without being uh, deplatformed or without being banned. I think that's the, that's the big positive that's come out of this entire hashtag, I believe. Well, and uh, my friend Popehead, he was speaking in one of the spaces with Mario and all of them, and he mentioned a lot of the Roman, the ways that, you know, world Jewry has kind of triumphed over Roman Catholicism and its quote-unquote, you know, perceived institutional anti-Semitism. You know, they basically killed the cult of Simon of Trent, one of the blood martyrs, you know, child blood martyrs, much like our own beloved St. Gabriel of Bialystok. They prevented Anne Catherine Emmerich from even being canonized in the church you know her visions inspired the passion of the christ and mel gibson and they were just so offended by that movie in general that it would dare to tell the honest facts that you know you know civilizational jewry is in fact implicated in the death of our lord and savior jesus christ by you know the scriptures and the tradition itself and you're right i mean this is the adl has spearheaded a movement to change the paschal hymns in the orthodox church which again implicate civilizational jewry and the death of our savior and you know laud the gentile nations for accepting christ and uh the adl of course doesn't want to hear anything about that and i think it's so important that again we've talked a few times about uh, we had a whole response to public orthodoxy on the ruski mir stuff in the past on this show and we talked about sarah riccardi schwartz and some of these nefarious academic characters and i think it's just so important to uh realize that again I'm not trying to offend any Catholics here, but this, to not to put it not lightly at all, the, the Jews triumphing over your church at the level of deciding the recognition and glorification of saints, to me, sounds a lot like the gates of hell triumphing over your institution. Therefore, meaning your institution is likely not the true church. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to monetize this episode, so I, I can speak freely here, and I don't say this lightly in the sense that... Uh, 
to people like, you know, George Demacopoulos, Aristotle, Papa Nicolaou, trying to, they've moved for these same points. They've said, it's time to change our Paschal hymns. It's time to change the Holy Week liturgical chanting and the service books because they're anti-Semitic. I'd have to say that uh, you're a Shabbos Goy race traders and work for Jews, as a, a certain great man once said on his show. And I think about a certain Matt Walsh, who he's come a long way. So, uh, you know, maybe if Matt Walsh can come out of that, maybe uh, these guys can come around too. But I think it's, it's, it's honestly beyond despicable that these people literally just take up the cause of the literal killers of Jesus Christ. And I guess the, all I can say to them is that if they don't change their ways, uh, God will spit you out because you are, in fact, very lukewarm. I, I think that's, uh, like I said, this <laughs> not going to monetize this one on YouTube. So, you know, thank you, Substack. If you want to support the show, you know, worldwarnow.substack.com, subscribe. These are, these are the type of rants you get behind the paywall, you know. This is, you know, it just shows you that uh, Keith Woods and these guys have done a great job bringing this to the fore because, you know, if the average person is going to be talking about this, then, you know, it's our job to keep, keep pushing the envelope, keep making sure that, you know, the facts go on and the people realize that this isn't just World War III, but you yourself and your civilization that your ancestors gave you, you are at war with, uh, well, with all sorts of groups of people, but very specifically groups that the ADL represent. Even if, whether you like it or not, you don't, you, you may not want to be at war, you may not like it, but sucks to suck, they, they have a problem with you. So <laughs> that you better, better, better get wise to it. But I think what's really interesting is this all happens in the midst of, of course, and it, of course there's, uh, there are Jews that have, you know, Laura Loomer and other groups, you know, really came out against this. This isn't to say there were a lot of great, Jewish people online that recognize the danger of the ADL and recognize that the ADL's behavior definitely leads to more anti-Semitism because all it does is, you know, really cement this uh, unfortunate reality that that Jews wield a uh, large amount of influence in this country and it has a negative effect on something like free speech. But this all goes on in the midst of Israel having some of its worst race riots in recent years with Eritreans uh, rioting in the streets among a few other African groups. And, you know, Israel, they don't mess around. They quickly deployed live ammunition and Netanyahu's pledged to uh, basically deport all Africans, which all I can say is in many cases, I wish that we could adopt some of Israel's domestic policies over here in the United States. But uh, of course, the ADL will never be caught calling uh, Israel racist, but instead will be making intense uh, pages dedicated to doxing anybody that associates now with people like Keith Woods or Nick Fuentes or uh, Lucas John Gage or any of these guys. You know, they will be in the headlights, you know, the, in the kind of in the uh, sights of these people. But any kind of, you know, basic overt racial supremacy and, you know, demographic preservation from the, uh, from the country of Israel will not be uh, noticed by this supposedly anti-racist group. Yeah, I, th I think the Eritrean story in Israel is completely... Um... Uh, it's, it's it's really funny because we do have these Middle Eastern media sites such as Al Jazeera essentially claiming, look, Netanyahu's call to the port Eritrean shows Israel's racism is global. And in fact, a lot of these countries such as, uh, you know, because the Eritrea was celebrating some sort of festival for the first time, somehow the festival broke out into these multiple, these riots all around the world. And in fact, now 18,000 asylum seekers in Israel, Eritrean asylum seekers are... In, you know, in Tel Aviv, they started a gigantic riot. And in fact, now Netanyahu's first message was a strong one. And in fact, we know the um, the parliament in Israel is very split. So it's very cutthroat politics over there. And Netanyahu needs to show a strong message for his uh, Israeli compatriots. And he just said straight up, look, we're just going to deport these 18,000 refugees. 
And like, and that's, mind you, refugees are, are an actual class of people, unlike illegal immigrants or immigrants. We understand that. We know Orthodox Christians were refugees all around the world after the bombings of Yugoslavia and Serbia, after the Russian, uh, you know, the, the communist takeover of Russia. So we know refugees are real, are real communities. But even some of these Orthodox Christian communities or refugees, have they ever started riots of some capacity to, like this sort when they say emigrated to Turkey or to Western Europe or even countries such as Canada, Australia, United States? No, I don't recall. So it's it's a different sort of culture, right? Eritreans, um, you know, they are refugees, asylum seekers. Most of them, mind you, are young men. And of course, Netanyahu won't be tolerating these young Africans studying uh, nonsense in Tel Aviv. And it does show that, look, in the future, when the Antichrist does reign over Israel, and that is his sort of seat of power, and he is crowned the high priest and the monarch, the king of this new Israel, and when Israel does reign over the majority of the world, it will be somewhat right wing as well. Like there will be, there will be, of course, proper worship of him as the as the Moshiach. There will be, of course, right wing policies, and there will be probably, ex, uh, you know, probably kicking people out as well actively. There might even be capital punishment in in the Antichrist's future future state, which he runs for three and a half years in the world. So let's not be surprised that Israelis somehow, well, despite them being like very progressive and left wing and them being uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, somehow aligned to movements such as the ADL and moving this left wing uh, needle in the right in the wrong direction in the world, Israel is still has, you know, domestic policies which other countries simply cannot adopt because they'd be labeled as racist. It's like, uh, you know, base policies for me, but not for D. And Israel continues that particular trend. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an open borders for Israel advocate, but I'd much rather the Eritreans uh, go there instead of come here. But, you know, I mean, Eritrea, I mean, do they even need to be going anywhere? They have like one of the longest dictatorships in the world. I mean, I th they, their country may not be nice to live in, but I think a lot of parts of it are stable. So, I, again, the classic, uh, you know, the classic economic migrant, a.k.a. refugee, apparently, depending on the situation. I mean, they are on the periphery of the Ethiopian kind of conflict, and they, you know, the Tigray. The, the Eritreans are claiming that all these riots around the world were actually by Ethiopian Tigrayans, you know, just the classic, no, no, it was it was them. And, you know, look, I love to stand our nihilotic Eastern African brothers over the Bantu horde, but at the end of the day... You know, Africans are Africans, so it seems that this is how it's going to go sometimes. But we have to move on. We're running low on time. We've got to mention a few issues. Uh, we want to talk about uh, Strelkov and uh, some of the infighting going on among the Angry Patriots Club. Dimitri, I want you to fill us in on that. Yeah, just uh, early in September, uh, of course, like on our last episode, actually, a few days before this, so late August, Strelkov out of prison announced that he's running for president for the presidency of the Russian Federation in late 2024. And everybody thought it was a joke until Pavel Gubodov exactly a few days ago has mentioned that, look, he will not be working with the Angry Patriots Club in Moscow and Russia, in Petersburg as well, and that he'll in fact be leaving the Angry Patriots Club or the Patriots Club will be reforming in some massive capacity and that he doesn't he won't be working with uh, Igor Strelkov at all in any in any way in the future, but he still supports him. He still believes Strelkov should be free, and he still believes the Strelkov should actually be given permission to travel to the front lines and fight in the SMO. Uh, Pavel Gubudov, essentially, a lot of the people, the supporters of the Angry Patriots Club, sort of Russians, right-wing patriots who don't exactly agree with Putin's vision for Russia, or they see Putin as more or less this, more or less a really soft version of what Russia should be, and Stilkov supporters, just general oppositionary members of the right wing in Russia. They did not support Pavel Gubudov at all in this assessment. They said, look, if Strelkov wants to run for president, maybe he should. Like, there is no, like, maybe we should actually collect signatures. Because in Russia, to run for the presidency, you do need to collect several hundred thousand official signatures and names and contact details from people in order to actually be eligible to run for the presidency, which is really hard because, 
yeah, just in, in general, you can assume. So some of the, um, just the collective effort and, and the funding that you need in order to run for the presidency in Russia is extremely difficult to obtain. A lot of even left-wing figures such as Navalny couldn't ever do it. And, and in fact, Navalny had, you know, besides overseas funding, he had official crowdfunding operations, which never really came into fruition in the past years. But uh, someone like Stadelkov, the, this this particular call for presidency is very curious. But now that him and Paul Gubudov have parted sides, it's it's really unfortunate because we've seen this before in the right wing movements and in American other English speaking countries where people like, um, you know, people have fought with Nick Fuentes. You know, Alex Jones has argued with Fuentes. There's all kinds of you know the right wing movements in the past. For example, even the Rodina Party in America, uh, sorry, not not in America, in Russia, we had when we had uh, Glazyov's Andrei Savelyev and. Uh, Dmitry Rogozin, later the f- future head of Roscosmos, who launched these satellites and rocket ships to the moon, uh, these these right wing parties have broken up because of infighting. And in fact, we see infighting all over right wing spaces, not just in America but also in Russia. And it's really unfortunate that it continues to this day. Now we have what uh, Pavel Gubarev, the former head of Novorossiya, and you know the resistance in the Don- Donetsk, Donbass. He he has he's a man of reputation, of really good standing. He has a good family, a loving wife. His wife was. As again, one of the one of the I guess you could say rebels, the the unionist movement of Donetsk actually protecting the Russian people over there from Ukrainian encroachment. He's from a good family, and him now arguing with Strelkov over this particular presidency run is just really unfortunate because it seems like a non-issue. And I guess what will the future hold for the Russian right-wing movement, at least in this particular area um, for the 2024? I'm not too sure. It, it does seem it does seem like quite bleak, and in fact. Pavel Gubarev does have a large following, about 50,000 people on Telegram. Not as many as Strelkov, closing in on a million, but I think we'll find out towards the end of September once Strelkov is finally released from prison, or at least put on house arrest, exactly what his thoughts are. Perhaps he'll release some videos, and he'll speak on it a bit more openly. But infighting in right-wing movements, Conrad, we've seen this too. Like, people just cannot run coalitions and alliances without infighting. And sometimes you can say maybe it's because, you know, left-wing movements and Masonic and maybe even more covert groups infiltrate and they cause infighting, but I think it's a large, much larger debate and discussion, which we don't really have time for it on this episode, but infighting and right-wing movements, that is the trend across, you could say, the entirety of the 21st century, right? I mean, ever since, I would say, the fall of the USSR. I would say kind of a big point of this show, I wouldn't say an explicit point, but sort of an implicit point. If this show has any kind of political aspirations, I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is a political movement show. It's a it's two guys talking about the Third World War, right? But it's uh, if it has any kind of political implications, it's that Christianity would uh, be the answer to solve, of course, these issues. Specifically, Orthodox Christianity, of course, as you know, from a political perspective. Other, you know, in America at least, specifically, evangelicalism has proven to be uh, well, it's proven to be politically advantageous, just not for uh, America, <laughs> just for a different, a different country. So uh, I think, in many ways, I think. The United States and it's just a Christianity in general, Orthodoxy again, even in Russia, an Orthodox nation, where in theory everybody involved here is Orthodox. I believe if Orthodoxy was even more of the focus, then uh, issues like this wouldn't happen. And that's, you know, that's not to say that someone like Gubarov, again, he's deeper in this than me. I'm not going to say that he might not feel a certain way and felt like something was necessary. But come on, I mean, Shulkov's literally in jail. Do you really need to like? Do we really need to be stirring the pot more than, even if he is hard to work with, right? Like, do we really need to be stirring the pot more than? more than needs to be done. But if you want to uh, tap the people in a little bit about, uh, do you want to talk about the Greek IDs or Putin at Divievo first? Because they both kind of tie into the same thing. Yeah, I think as he, like, let's just speak about 
we'll put it on Dieva because uh, Dieva Monastery, of course, that's where the relics of Saint Seraphim of Saravlai and all the other Dieva saints, including the new martyrs, an entire uh, slew of saints, Saint Pasha of Dieva, some of the great even prophetesses, uh, you could say the, the older nuns. Uh, so Dieva is a women's monastery uh, next to Nizhny Novgorod, just east of Moscow, and it's very famous for having the Dieva Trench, which we spoke about on the, I think, episode five or six of World War Now. You can go back and listen to that. Putin essentially walks alongside the trench with the abbess of the monastery and the local bishop and some of his bodyguards so they they walked the, the trench and the, and the holy ditch blessed by the mother of god all those years ago 200 years ago after the russian and napoleonic wars and uh saint seraphim of sarah's monastery and all the putin again visits a monastery visits a very famous holy monastery of russia uh visits the place where say um which allegedly the Antichrist will not be able to conquer that particular move past this trench in the coming in the in the coming eschatological conflict, which you know according to Orthodox prophecy and tradition, Dzivieva is one of those uh, one of those vanguard points in the world. This like a very uh, holy place that you know even the forces of the world won't be able to touch in the future. It's it's just it really points points us towards the fact that look, Putin despite some of his shortcomings and even maybe strange policies and uh, things which we find questionable, he's still trying. He's still trying to uphold the image of Orthodox Christianity in Russian society and even inside of himself, even if he's badly uh, catechized or he doesn't understand uh, you know, like orthodoxy as perhaps uh, people who are well catechized should. I think him even appearing at these monasteries and visiting churches, venerating relics, it gives a very um, uplifting message to the Russian people. So generally, really great that he actually went on this small pilgrimage amidst, you know, meeting with Erdogan and in, um, Sochi and having all these important political meetings. He's still finding the time to actually visit monasteries. This, it harkens back to, say, the traditions of the early Tsars of the Romanov dynasty, as well as the late Rurikid dynasty, who used to visit um, monasteries in churches on a weekly basis and it would be a different monastery every week and we see putin kind of holding to that or perhaps i mean he is up there in age he's uh, well over 70 now so it does point towards the fact that maybe it's time to focus more on the spiritual and the, the spiritual fruits you'll leave behind you and in fact you know funding and organizing programs rebuilding some of these monasteries promoting uh promoting orthodoxy in russia maybe he wants that to be part of his legacy and his legacy like putin will already go down in the history books but maybe this particular chapter he's trying to work on as well which is admirable despite our position on putin or some of our personal opinions and grabs of him this, this can is can't be seen as anything other than a positive you know a positive trend for the future of russia and you know it, this comes in in light of you know uh an escalation i suppose in in you know the foreign pol politicals um seen around the world so it's only it's only good that putin is still participating actively in the orthodox in the orthodox life in russia i think it's uh, generally positive yep yeah, no, I mean, talking about the trench is one of the, we've talked about it in a few episodes, and again, we Napoleon is, is talking about Napoleon. He was declared an antichrist by the church. I think in many ways, Napoleon's failure to, you know, conquer the Russian Empire is kind of a, you could almost call it a, a foreshadowing of the antichrist's eventual failure to make it past, you know, the trench, you know, when he is, I'm assuming, ruling from Jerusalem. But this this ties, you know, this... Uh, this, this talk, you know, Putin visiting this place, bringing upon this sort of uh, eschatological sentiments of course is being felt in greece as well as the uh the greek government weighs you know they they're they're planning on implementing the new uh state ids that are basically beginning to kind of compile all of the other ids that you're given into one card which you know greece has always been kind of, in for the past few decades they've been sort of a test case for a lot of these globalist eu measures as they've been in extreme debt you know they've kind of just been forced to be a a bit of a laboratory for globalism as the as they've ingratiated themselves towards the European Union and Brussels and everyone like that. But 
you know, this is something that, you know, many figures in the church have, have spoken out against, you know, so much so that the, the, the Synod of the Ecumenical Patriarch, well, the Synod of the Church of Greece, you know, felt the need to release a statement saying that, you know, this is a state matter, you know, we, we're going to be looking at, you know, uh, lay people's concerns, but people shouldn't, you know, freak out about this, you know, they're, they're trying to make there not be too much freaking out. And again, I'm not saying this is necessarily the final ID that St. Paisios, I mean, St. Paisios explicitly says that when they give you an ID that merges all of your bank information, you need to not take this one. And again, obviously, I think we're going to, I want to wait to hear what, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Metropolitan Neophytos has already talked about this. Again, any Greek-speaking people, I really am hoping for, I hate, be, I, there's a few Greek people I know and I feel so annoying hitting them up like, hey, what did this say? And I send them a 25-minute video of St. of a Metropolitan Neophytos talking. And I'm expecting them to like translate the whole thing for me. So if you uh, want to help us out, I always like hearing what he says and what other Greek figures say as I cannot speak Greek. But I'm going to be looking into what he said because I'm sure he's addressed this. But yeah, I mean, a lot of figures in the church, definitely people about Athos will have things to say about this. And at this point, it seems that, you know, in the midst of uh, the war in Ukraine and the schism and everything, a lot of the people in Greece and on Cyprus are, some of them are getting very tired of the what I would consider like the stalwart representatives of the, you know, the lineage of the saints, their, uh, their stubbornness in the face of kind of, you know, just the worldly things that like, come on, man, just support Ukraine and get the ID and take the vaccine and, and you know, just con celebrate with the schismatics, you know, it's just like, you know, the Chad, no, you know, sometimes that's just too much for them. Yeah, of course, Archbishop Yerinyem of Athens, as well as his synod, exactly how much trust would, would somebody like myself, who's a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, have for a person, you know, a person who has supported the schism and who has um, communed and even co-served with straight-up schismatics? I mean, I would personally doubt his the legitimacy of his decision to not really worry about this particular ID system, especially if Greece is so heavily integrated now with the EU, NATO being a monetary slaves to the IMF and all these other institutions. And this is, of course, another yoke and burden upon the Greek people. Do they really, now the Greek is completely indebted, do they really want all of their IDs digitally available for the New World Order to assess? Like, you know, it's like, do they really want this uh, sort of Damocles hanging over them? I would say probably not. If anything, you'd want to be more decentralized at a time where your country would most likely need to go through essentially a national bankruptcy and a default of sorts in the future. I think when if Greece will need to reformat, there'll definitely be a a, a huge down, and then a you know essentially this economic uh, this economic calamity will need to take place, and then of course Greece will probably rise up from the ashes as it always has throughout history. But nevertheless, I I'm so, somewhat doubtful of the legitimacy of this decision to really not worry about these ideas and to be very vigilant. I mean, I agree with the vigilancy part. But and again, maybe they're trying to not to stoke not to stoke fears and panic amongst the Greek public too, Conrad. But let's just let's be considerate. Like after this COVID vaccine, after the Greek promotion of the Pfizer vaccine, and these other AstraZeneca or whatever was popular in Greece at the time, it does seem like uh, the trust of the people is really not with not with some of these mainstream bishops. And uh, I will doubt very heavily that you know them co-saving with schismatics doesn't help, but. I would doubt they're flirting with the with the Freemasons in Athens to be any sort of uh, any sort of bring any sort of positive fruits for I don't know the the future of the Greek nation. Frankly, uh, if anything, again, it's hard it's hard for us to speak about it because look, we're all from different countries here. Well, not n neither me nor Conrad live in Greece, so it's hard for us to condescendingly tell the Greek people what to do in this particular situation. All we can do is report on the news and give our opinions. But frankly, the Greek people have their own multi-thousand year history going back to the apostles right the early apostles themselves the you know uh christ's christ's uh, apostolic descendants 
were in Greece itself. Greece has some of the earliest uh, Christian co collection of saints going all the way back. They, the Greek people could, I think, they're grown up already. They can decide for themselves how to fix these situations. I think we, we're simply observing their successes and failures from abroad and commenting on them. I don't think Greece should, again, rehashing last week's point, Greece shouldn't depend on Russia or Bulgaria or Serbia coming from abroad and saving them. I think the Greek people are grown up enough to realize what's happening internally and to you know, seek for reformation from the inside and kind of bring this to the bishop, say, look, Father, I don't, these, these Aphanite monks do not agree with me here. Have a look at these prophecies of St. Paisios. They're very credible, uh, credible verbal prophecies. What do you, what do you think about that? It shouldn't be seen as cringe. These things should be brought forward to your pastors, to your, to your, um, you know, the heads of your diocese and openly spoken about. I don't think there should be any, any fear of condemnation on the end of the Greek, Greek people. So it is very much in the hands of the Greek people how where they wish to take this issue. If they're going to riot and um, say protest openly about it and riot in a, in a peaceful way, I mean, naturally not in some BLM-like fashion in America. We're not, we're not going to you know behave like some sort of animals. We're Christians here. So if the Greek I mean, people, Greeks may be black, but not like that. You know, not like that. You know, <laughs> um, the Greek people need to uphold their their own beliefs and ideas about what's happening in their own country openly and outwardly as well there is no babysitting no other orthodox country is as old as greece so nobody will come to save you i think that's what the greek people really need to ascertain here there, there is no help from abroad at the point everybody else is busy you need you guys need to and I, th I think they are i think they do understand that which is why every time there's like a potential gay parade happening in Athens. There's always a semi-pogrom waiting around the corner. I think the Greek people do understand that. So, uh, you know, I, I'm only thinking that the bishops also know that they, that's, a, that's a trend in society. There is this really large conservative group always hiding there with like sticks and things like that, waiting to go out on the streets and protest actively against such measures by the government, when, especially these Masonic measures like IDs. Um, I'm definitely hopeful. Yeah, I just want to read some of the things. In 2016, there was a big protest from Athenites and uh, clergy and all sorts of lay people, even scientists and whatnot, against, you know, the coming introduction of like a citizen's card, you know, one of the earlier renditions of this, you know, continued amalgamation of all the cards into one kind of global ID. And what was it? The Holy Canode of Mount Athos, you know, the entire representative of all the of all the monasteries. They sent a letter to Georgios Katrugalos, who was the minister of administrator from, of administrative reform at the time in Greece. Uh, they said, in the view of the Holy Canoe, the new electronic passport, which is being introduced under the pretext of the struggle with bureaucracy and the economic crisis, will pose a threat to the inviolability of personal data and will lead to violation of personal rights and freedoms. We ask you to take into consideration that the electronic citizen's card is an outrage upon the human dignity of citizens, reducing them to mere numbers in the system of the state administration. Thus, the God-given freedom of human personality will be violated. This is, again, this was said by like basically a unified statement of all of the Athenite monasteries. And, you know, they took the streets and there are all sorts of epic signs and, you know, the clergy were holding up icons and everything. And I think in the next few days we may see something about this in the midst of the latest decision. Obviously, it seems that the Synod in general may be less tolerant of some of this stuff than it was back in 2016. But we'll be watching what Metropolitan Theophytos, what, you know, some of these other figures, you know, what Savas Achilios or some of these other Athenite figures may have to say. But in general, yeah, I mean, we love the... Uh, I was joking, of course, about, you know, Greeks being black. We love Greece. I love Greeks. They're uh, some of my favorite people. You know, again, we want more Greek people helping out on this show because we want to interview more Greeks and talk to more of them. So if you're Greek and listening to this, you know, be sure to reach out. We uh, we want to talk to you. We want to talk to people you know because, you know, that's one thing as well about Greek people is so many of, especially the ones that are involved in the church, you know, they're well-connected. They 
they talk, they, they love their relationships with bishops and monks and stuff. So whenever I meet a Greek person that is passionate about the church, I love to pick their brain because, you know, they, the ones that are serious, they, they do take it very seriously. Yeah, that's right. I think, and, you know, Greece does give us this prime primal example of, you know, when people say the people of Greece are very um, ethnocentric and things like that. And, you know, they are, it's not even that. It's the fact that their culture has been almost crafted and redesigned by the teachings of the apostles in the church from the from the beginning of the of the uh, you can say the the new testament period so in fact the greek people do not see themselves separate from christianity and even these creations of the 20th and 21st century where they try to create a secular idea of greek culture and even you know you visit a greek restaurant and you eat an olive and that's somehow uh throw throw back to athens and sparta the greeks still have that but it's it's so deeply deeply um merged with orthodoxy it's simply it's it's cannot be disconnected i think the only other country similar would probably be um well, bulgarian culture of course being greatly destroyed by the ottomans so in fact it's very heavily damaged but i would say georgians serbians and russians definitely uh, russians are somewhat like test tube babies in a way they are somewhat created in there's no there's no russia without orthodoxy in fact so greece perhaps does have that ancient pre-christian history which it can still touch upon but in fact greece is this really prime example and even i would say speaking of blacks like greece is an example and you know and the Alexandrian Church has shown shown this throughout the 20th century. Greece is an example for black countries as well, where each country could have its national culture and alongside orthodoxy merge the two and in fact push their culture into the future. Of, you know, they're this thing particular like Greece is a small country, but notice it hasn't merged over the years with either the the Turks, which you know the, the Ottoman occupation, or the Slavs in the north. It kind of held its own. And for a country like like for a large country continent such as Africa with distinct tribes and ethnicities, this could be the model and you know when we speak about Burkina Faso or Mali and even Nigeria and Niger orthodoxy is what could assist them in keeping their distinctness as well as you know help them form perhaps a larger confederacy state where each each ethnicity and culture will be especially Christianized and um, I don't know how to say it like a culture could be catechized in some way right um and sort of baptized into into the orthodox church and sort of orthodoxy does still promote national distinctness which i think africans will embrace in the future this is without a doubt uh, the countries of asia will embrace we see this in japan very actively and greece is the foremost example of this which is why you know western christians uh, you know, by western christian i mean mostly protestants use this as an example against orthodoxy say well orthodoxy is too ethnocentric it's like well, no not really in fact all humans are attached to some ethnicity or tribe or nationality there is no human who is simply cosmopolitan you know even monks on mount athos are either russian greek serbian you know they you know i would say something like a vague a vague notion of a cosmopolitan nationalism simply doesn't exist and that's the lesson i think the greek people move forward is that look we are Greek, but we're at the same time Orthodox, and these two identities do not, uh, they're not in a, you know, they're not in um, a dialectic tension, what you could say from a Marxist, and there is none of this false dialectician, dialectical tension between the two. So that's something I think to consider, and that's a great perk, I think, for the Greek, for the Greek people, is that they always have this Orthodox, you could say Orthodox baggage or Orthodox foundation in the back, which will always which will always be present despite how badly the country may fall culturally or even collectively that they can always return to the church because the presence is always there. Yeah. I mean, we love, we love Greece. I really want to go to Greece someday. And yeah, I mean, we're kind of running out of time here. Uh, obviously I'll do the plugs and everything. I wanted to talk about, uh, our, I don't know if we mentioned on the last show. I don't think we, I think this happened in the past few days, not 
a week ago, but uh, the, we super chatted Jackson Hinkle on Fresh and Fit, and he he did not take it well. And I think we wanna we're gonna keep pushing some of these MAGA communists. You know, Haas was spurging out on his. He had a call-in show, and he was muting everybody and completely spurging. He wasn't capable of he wasn't able to handle the pressing on you know the JQ and other issues. So you know maybe this week we'll do a Twitter space or a live stream, kind of talking about all this because you know we've kind of been involved in all this discourse relatively heavily, despite Jackson Hinkle insisting, oh Orthodox Canonist. I don't know who that is, but you know, follow us on Twitter at World War Now. You'll keep up with all of this stuff. But with all that being said, you know, WorldWarNow.substack.com. That's where you can find us for everything. Go to the go there to support us. Get access to all the Ether Hour episodes. You know, when you pay seven dollars a month, get behind the paywall. You know, you get all those Ether Hours where we go off. You know, we don't censor. We just say whatever's on the mind, and it's really good stuff as well as some really in-depth historical, you know, mythological analysis. Some of the stuff I, I mean, as far as me and Dimitri could tell, there's really nothing like it anywhere else on the internet. And of course, when you support us in that way, you uh, help us with these episodes. You know, these ones may be public, but that doesn't mean they don't take a lot of work. So when you support us to get that paywall, just know that you're also allowing these episodes to be longer, more well-researched and everything. So it goes towards everything. And uh, World War Now underscore on Twitter, like I said, follow us, follow Dimitri at Orthodox Canonist, O Canonist. Follow me at GnomeRad. Uh, be sure to follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. We've been growing on there, posting a lot of good stuff. Follow us on Rumble, World War Now. Follow us and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, World War Now, you know, like the video, share, comment, really helps us on the YouTube algorithm. We're getting close to 3,000 subs, so boost us there. If you know people that haven't subscribed yet, send us to them, you know, maybe we'll shout out our 3,000 subscriber or something, who knows. But with all of that, you know, Dimitri, send us off. Yeah, thank you for everybody listening, uh, be you uh, Christian, Muslim, from, the or- from, from, of course, an Orthodox background, which we always welcome, or anybody interested in Orthodox Christianity, definitely worth visiting your local church. Google, what's the local Orthodox church next to you? Visit, Speak to the priest, of course, Saturday night or Sunday morning. Stay after church, of course, speak to your local pastor. Thank you for all the clergy supporting us, anybody listening. We apologize if we've, uh, of course, triggered anybody very heavily or if we've used, you know, inappropriate language, perhaps. I think we do get a bit unhinged at times only because we're so passionate about the subjects that we speak about. And I think just a final message for this week is hashtag ban the ADL. So true.